Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Welcome. <laughs> Stories are soul food. You're a one-stop diner for all things narratival. Yep. Okay. That's what it is. I don't know what episode it is, but what are we talking about, Brian? Well, I wanted to ask you about what's called science fiction mm. today. Because mm. uh, the question that I have is, we talk a lot about fantasy. Right. You write a lot about a f- fantasy. Yeah, I know. I, I write realism. That's okay. Okay. Well, what's the difference? But what about, <laughs> I thought. I thought we... I thought... You have know, we I had that have... conversation? No, I don't think we have. Okay. Because it feels important because we also do need to get eventually into C.S. Lewis's works of sci-fi. And yes. whether, whether all sci-fi is fantasy. Yes. Uh, whether why, why sci-fi and fantasy both feel so pulpy. Oh, pulpy. Because they are pulpy. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, all science fiction is fantasy. Okay. So that'll be the first thing that rubs people the wrong way that I say today. There are a lot of people who think that it's a fundamentally different uh, category, but it's not. It's usually people who want sci-fi to be smarter than fantasy, right? Yeah, more important. Yeah. Yep. You know, more for the adults. Right. I've heard Star Wars described as fantasy, but Star Trek is sci-fi. Because <laughs> mm. it, ta- it talks about nations and technology and phil- philosophy. But Yeah. I- Science fiction is often fantasy with tech placebos. You know, oh, it's okay. just, but I, I mean, I like science fiction. I've got no problem with science fiction, but it belongs in the subset. Of imagined things. Yeah. And and I, but, I, but I think that perhaps my own distinction between fantasy and realism can be helpful, but most people, most fans that I, okay, this is, this is just anecdotal. I'm going to back up and try to do this correctly. The, when differ- I talk, the difference between sci-fi and fantasy is? No. <laughs> This is a different thing than that, Brian. I'm not doing it that way. Most people who get upset when I talk to them about why science fiction is fantasy, they get upset because they fundamentally believe that science fiction is possible and is coming, where fantasy will never be. And so science fiction is a form of prophetic realism. And a lot of it never comes to pass, but a lot of it does. And it's the creators and authors, and this is true, the creators and authors who make up the ideas for things that inventors then later, you know, they follow behind and try to figure it out. So, and it's not that they think there's going to be a, you know, a Starship Enterprise or something like that. It's just that they think that they're, this belongs in the world. Okay. All right. This is, this is like, it's the same as making believe a story about, you know, whatever, a, a detective, a cowboy. A cowboy in the future, you know, you are, it's okay. speculative, but then you have subsets like man in the high castle where it's an alternative reality and it's an entirely different parallel universe in which the Nazis won and, and they will tell you, the real diehards will tell you, yes, that's possible. In fact, it probably happened and right. there probably is a reality where the Nazis won. There's a parallel universe. So there's, there's kind of this true believerism that happens around sci-fi. Where people, you know, they, they really want to think that these are the things that are possible. 
doesn't mean they will happen. Doesn't mean they did happen, but they are possible. And fantasy are, you know, those are the stories that are not possible. Fundamentally, I think we have a word for it. What's the word? Impossible. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So, uh, so these... and that's kind of a, so when I talk to the diehards, the real diehards, the real diehard sci-fi authors and fans, and even more, so some of the authors are true blue, like they are believers in in science and modernism yeah and, oh and yeah where we're headed yep and the all the things that are possible through unlocking technological secrets they're the some people. of them okay. are true blue people some of the the authors are but overwhelmingly it's the fans that are that way and the authors aren't uh the authors tend to be more comfortable with the conversation I'm making a, stuff a, up yeah, the, yeah yeah exactly and i yeah i'm making stuff up that i think maybe could happen but i'm making stuff up right and the reason why I don't write realism is because realism is unrealistic. It is stupid. And it's as, as a genre, realism is, the, is basically the category of writing stories as if there is no supernatural, as if there is only the material world. Yeah. It's materialism only. And that's the weird part is strictly materialism is called realism. Which is crazy because that's not real. At all. It's not, not even, even close. Yeah. yeah. So not, not even close to real. And it gets dubbed realism. So these if, are you the same. if you introduce anything, so if you introduce a spirit, if you introduce the supernatural, if you, inter if you introduce anything other than the material world, you're now writing fantasy or Christian, mm. Christian speculative fiction. Who came um, up with these distinctions? <laughs> <laughs> losers that's who <laughs> people with bad attitudes but then you go to sci-fi and you actually find in sci-fi you find the same commitment to often not always but the same commitment to the material world and so it's materialism having a dream it's we unlock something and so what is life what is consciousness well it's a chemical reaction it's a thing and then we always have these explorations of does the robot have a soul? Is it, <laughs> right. is it becoming self-aware? Is the, is the computer becoming self-aware? Then, and, oh, yeah. but then and we're, then but the we're even, in Dawkins and Hitchens world. Right, where even the Star Trek episodes yeah. with God, Star Trek episodes with where they're wondering if they meet God always turn into higher forms of consciousness that have evolved right. out of their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very After real. having had a bad virus. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so there's a, you basically have sci science fiction is in its, and I'd say in its pure form is materialism, writing fantasy. And then, okay. and then you move into fantasy and you have realism, what I, my version of realism, the real world in which the spirit plane exists, in which the supernatural is real, in which the material and the immaterial coexist in one reality and one narrative. Yeah, after that which death is view. not the end. Yeah, after which death is not the end. A world in which uh, miracles happen, a world which was spoken by God, a world in which you have a soul and that it leaves when you die and you die when it leaves. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's this world. That's the real world. And when that world writes fantasy, that's fantasy. When that, when that world speculates right. and, ha and plays with imagination, then you end up with people like Gandalf. Gotcha. You know, so the world in which Moses existed, when that world tells a bedtime story, like it's Gandalf. It gets siloed it's, it's, off as fantasy. Yeah. yeah. 
And when you have Darwinian librarians telling a story. Yeah. A world in which, you know, amoebas turned into cows and then those cows turned back into whales and actually even better. And little, that's not a joke. You're not making yeah, fun of so that. So when sea creatures, when sea creatures decided, hey, let's try lungs and let's get rid of these gills and let's crawl up on the beach and let's, let's turn into things that lactate. And <laughs> <laughs> then from there, others, some, some of those up on the, on the hillside were saying, you know what? I'm sick and tired of chewing this cud and lactating. I've always craved massive quantities of krill. So I'm right. going to crawl back into the ocean Seafood. and lose my legs. And become bigger than school buses. Yes, and, and my <laughs> analogous flippers match my yeah. limbs upon the land. So, a world in which that stuff happens through ran the random unlocking of genetic combinations via mutation and chaos is a world when, that's, when that world tells bedtime stories. <laughs> you get sci-fi. Yeah, you get Prometheus. You get Blade yeah. Runner. You get yep. classic stuff. iRobot. Yeah, um, you, get, you get that that kind of thing. Now- when what is the actual like toggle that makes a thing sci-fi or not is just you know no i think that, i think that works <laughs> i think that works because they always say hey frankenstein is the first example of sci-fi and they always say fantasties mcdonald is the first example of fantasy if we're you know and yeah. and it it's hard to find a more a more faithful writer or a more faithless writer pair if you're going to pick yeah but i also i don't think that's necessarily true um so, if you think about the story of Icarus is science fiction. Okay. You know, it's like, it's a, a technological discovery that, yeah. you know, results in a tragic flaw. And if you go, I mean, like way, way before McDonald, we have fantasy stories. <laughs> so, it's... Okay, yeah. You know, we're talking about the myths, the Greek myths. We're talking about Ovid. We're talking about Beowulf. Yeah. You know, we're, we're right. significantly pre-McDonald. If we jump into the modern world and we say, when dealing with the modern English language novel, yeah, Frankenstein's mm -hmm. the first example of sci-fi. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll okay. give you, I'll give you that. But, but writing about technology and what technology does is as old as technology. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> a, it's as old as inventions, <laughs> right? So if somebody imagines a story in which an invention changes something, you know, the unlocking of tech or of some genetic secret or something like that. Then Pandora's you, box, don't they literally, aren't most, many, many sci-fi use the yeah. idea of Pandora's box, which is of course. Great but sci-fi is a subset of fantasy and it bleeds over a lot. And people who do have a full grasp of and love for the world God made, who then write a science fiction novel, are they not writing, you know, just a daydream of materialism. And Lewis is not doing that when he writes his space trilogy. So, right. But it is interesting. It is a, an iteration. It's a little cul-de-sac that got spun off of, you know, sort of bred off of the line of Christian fantasy and mythology in basically humanism and man as God. Right. And then often, and here's the irony of it, often res results in man being humbled because of man's arrogance about being God. Yeah. So encountering aliens or whatever, like you end up building the thing that destroys you, whether you, you built the robots and the robots overthrow you or, yeah. you know, whatever it is, you, you find it being very, very imprecatory towards man's arrogance. Yeah, so, so guilty. I mean, from so, yeah. Frankenstein onward, it is guilt. Yep. You know? And so we did this thing we shouldn't do and then now we're getting hosed. <laughs> that's kind of, that's a theme. 
And it's a great theme. It's one of the reasons why I think sci-fi is valuable. And you look around us today and you say, man, has anybody ever read a book? As, <laughs> as, as we try, as we race towards all sorts of folly, yeah, as we have big tech, big tech, big brother, like observing everything and controlling our behavior. You t- you t- I think rem- I remember you mentioning Google was looking at a way to upload human consciousness into, yeah. a, into a cloud. And well, I've, I've, obviously, yeah, and various people at the top tier of tech billionaires, they are highly fascinated with the concept of immortality. It's their front burner item, right? You know, so what is death? What is life? Yep. And how do I preserve myself forever? Is is kind of like the big thing. If you've already gotten really good at search engines, <laughs> <laughs> so that you actually have billions and billions of dollars and then you say we need to know everything and we're going to map every street and every byway and highway and we're going to do all these things we're going to know everything and yet you still fall apart and die yeah what is it in uh, a man's years shall be three score and ten you've got that and then you don't get any more so these guys if you are a tech billionaire and you're in the bay area you are absolutely having cocktail parties in which you're talking about your latest you know advances towards immortality you are absolutely blood bagging uh which is straight out of sci-fi so is that what's what's that plasma it's mocked in shows like silicon valley and other things but it's actually it's actually used it's a real thing where you find a very virile healthy young man with clean blood and you do who matches your type and you do significant transfusion swaps yikes so you put (laughs) a huge amount of young blood in yourself uh, which is like, you know, isn't that the start also, of a vampire novel? Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say like, that I'm getting weird echoes from the the Vlads. Aren't yeah, you? Ex- haven't you ex- done ex- exactly? I, I'm getting Ashtown crossovers. Yeah, ex- uh, yes, <laughs> correct. And that's actually the entire point of the Ashtown burial series is Lewis's point that scientism, the worship of science, and the pursuit of science as savior, ultimately devolves into sheer devilry. It will always turn into just pure devil worship and dark monstrosities and that is that's the case so ashtown connects eugenicists to you know and and that kind of thing to monsters you know and to this kind of monstrosity to frankenstein uh frankenstein's monster that kind of concept so sci-fi when used properly i think is really powerful as basically can be powerfully prophetic because if you are writing a story in the realm of what's possible and the readers believe that you're writing a story in the realm of what's possible and you are saying, see, here's the thing. We go from here to here to here with these, the technology we currently have, we connect these dots, this happens, and then the machines destroy us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's all this prophecy. And so despite all of the prophecies in science fiction for decades, which have all warned us about our hubris and our pride as we try to unlock mysteries and how it will ultimately go before our destruction we still do it and people still very cheerfully share videos of robots being trained to be extremely athletic <laughs> and it's like <laughs> yeah hey look i made a bulletproof robot that can dance and do backflips and you're like i wonder what else it can do <laughs> what else with just the tap of a button <laughs> yeah so somebody could upload their a little link to their smartphone and then send that robot hunting me couldn't they <laughs> and the answer is yes they could and that story has been told. 
many, many, <laughs> many times. Yeah. And so sci-fi is really great for cautionary tales, prophetic warnings. Lewis uses it extremely effectively in like the battle of worldviews. Yeah, I think we should do a whole episode on that at some yeah, point. Yeah, we'll do the we'll do the space trilogy as a standalone. But the clash of worldviews, medieval cosmology, Christianity versus hypermaterialism, scientism that ultimately devolves into the occult and devilry, which it does. So yeah. yeah. You know. Okay. So here's here's the thing. As Christians, then I have a feeling the sci we have a little bit of the if if you hear, for example, people who get upset with you saying there are dragons. In the mm. there was a dragon in the garden, right? And they say no, it wasn't. It was a snake, and it was a little snickety snake. Yeah, yeah, but it had to have legs, right? As you pointed out, because it got there's a curse because <laughs> it got cursed to lose them. Yeah, and um, it, that seems like an aspect of that desire to have sci-fi be real and fantasy be fake. If we because we are not telling ourselves, not telling our kids the stories in the way that it messes with our modernist categories. Like the so, idea that yeah. dragons are real, that, you know, the KJV mentions satyrs. Yeah, this is, this is important. This is one of the things that jump up and down on in a lot of talks at a lot of conferences is that we, in our modern shame, like we don't want, we want to make the leap of faith small enough that it's totally rational. <laughs> yes. Oh, right. And so we go through scripture and we work really hard on scripture. We've, we've talked about don't keep your kids from scripture, but part of that is don't disnify scripture and also do not modernize scripture when modernization means removing things that are clearly in there. Dawkins will make fun of. Yeah. Removing things that Christopher Hitchens would cock an eyebrow at. Right. Instead of what so, they clearly well, yeah. say. So for example, yeah. unicorns. They're in the Bible. They are in the Bible. You're not getting off the hook. They're there. They're not in your translation though. I would No, bet. most likely not in your translation because your translation is embarrassed. So when you, you can disnify the scriptures, but you can also remove the magic. The following has been edited for magic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're going to pull out anything that seems yeah. fantastical because we feel like we're worried that scripture will lose credibility. If we have fantastical things in there. So yeah. unicorns are in there. Yeah. They're yeah. in there. Are they my little pony unicorns? Absolutely not. They're not. Are they, are they sparkly white, you know, prancy medieval unicorns? I don't think so. Same thing with behemoth and Leviathan, right? Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Sparks fly from his nostrils. What does this tell you? So we all say, hey, not an alligator. Leviathan's a big alligator. Yeah. But he's breathing fire. And I'd be like, sure. If he breathes fire. <laughs> so as long as that alligator is blowing sparks out of its nostrils okay yeah I'll, i can i can buy that and as long as it's huge as long right. as it's some ancient massive sea croc that can blow fire out its face sure we're all good then i'm good that's leviathan because that's what it says yeah. uh, behemoth with its tail like a cedar and then you look at the little side note most likely the hippopotamus <laughs> it's like have you ever have you ever seen a hippo tail you know, small, behemoth. small and embarrassing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Insufficient to the task. <laughs> yeah. What do they say? Doesn't Job say knocks over trees with its tail? Yeah. It's uh, a, a tree, uh, a tail like cedars. Oh, that's what it is. And so you have uh, basically the hippopotamus with a tail like a very young cedar sapling in a nursery. 
<laughs> a little so, bit whippy. <laughs> yeah. So move, just stop it. Like we just have to stop it. And when Isaiah says, satyrs will dance in your ruins when he's prophesying against a city and he's like, dragons will dwell there and satyrs right. would dance in your ruins. It and we translate goats. It, it's goats. It's goats. Know, because the ancients didn't have a concept for satyrs. They didn't know. <laughs> they didn't know what that was. That's a new modern thing. It's like, are you kidding me? That's an ancient concept. They knew exactly what it was. Yeah, they half had words, man, half goat. They, they know had what words that is. for it. They had words for it. And that's funny. We've removed the words. And it's like translating centaur, Shetland pony. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a different thing. They now, both have four hooves. It's yeah, the same so thing. So you can say, this is poetic. You could say, it says satyrs. And what it means by satyrs is demons. Like, okay. Like, yeah. like the demons will dance in your ruins. That okay. still fits with hermeneutics and yeah, that, exegesis. That works. Yeah. That works. If you say the, the unicorn is a one-horned, a giant one-horned rhinoceros, rhinoceros, I'm like, okay. That actually preserves the meaning of the, of the passages where Job is asked, can you harness the unicorn and make him plow your field? And it's a rhetorical question. No. The answer is no, you cannot. <laughs> it's supposed to be a humbling rhetorical question. We translate it wild ox. We're thinking, uh, yeah, we've and the been answer dom- domesticating yeah. oxen for Job a long kinda, time. Job looks around awkwardly and is like, um, what did you think I was plowing with? Yeah. At the start of this book, I lost my entire herds of these creatures <laughs> yes. to the raiders. Anyway, it's, uh, all of this means we need to be aware of what the Bible is actually saying. Read the story as a story. But read, a sto- read, a, read the story as a story you believe. So Moses walks into Pharaoh's court and he turns a stick into a snake. Like, yeah. okay, we go from inanimate to animate. And here's the terrifying thing. Pharaoh's magicians could do the same thing. Like that, that's a level of dark magic that's intense. Moses wins the first wizarding duel in literature anywhere. And downstream from Moses comes Gandalf, etc. So how do we inoculate our kids against that modernism aspect? Because you, you, you get to the point where you're trying to explain to them, dragons are real, but no, most stories about dragons didn't happen. Right. Uh, well, most stories about horses didn't happen either. Okay. Yeah, you know, like most of those stories are fiction. So this is a story about a real thing where we've killed them off now. Yeah. Would be a good way of talking about it. Yeah. So there's no reason, I mean, like, it's not, it's not even hard to believe. You look, at the, you, you look at the dinosaur skeletons and fossils, mm-hmm. and you say, what would a medieval have called this? What would a, medi- what would a medieval call a, you know, a giant flying reptile right. that can, that's big enough to eat you? you know, it's going to fly through the sky. It's going to come down with a really sharp beak and rip your head off <laughs> and fly away. You know, what would we call a, a flying reptile with a 40-foot wingspan? Yeah. I mean, the word is dragon. I think it's, t- is it pterodon? What's the? That's <laughs> <laughs> a coatlus. Yeah, what, I don't remember. <laughs> I actually don't remember what the name is for the biggest one, the biggest dinosaur. No, Quetzalcoatlus, Northerby. Northerby. Okay. I think that's, that's the one. 40 that's foot. the one. That's the one. So that one is a dragon. There you go. Did it breathe fire? I don't know. It doesn't need to. It's a huge reptile that flies and eats things carnivorously. Yeah. It is not sipping nectar. Right. You know, it is a giant flying carnivorous reptile. Yeah. Fish and are too everybody, small. And everybody agrees that it existed. And so then, but then we get up on our high horse and poo-poo the, you know, the people who believed in dragons. Like, they yeah. unfortunately did not remember the dinosaur name that we made up 
thousands of yeah. years later. <laughs> so those fools, those idiots, did they not know that it was uh, whatever Brian said earlier? Anyway, it's, and also as, as to Leviathan breathing sparks, side note, everybody believes that there are beetles in this world that blow fireballs out their rear ends. Beetles. Bombardier beetle. The bombardier. The bombardier beetle. Yeah. It is a beetle launching fireballs out of its backside. Right. So, if uh, medievals talked about that, just imagine, if you will. Right. Superheated acid. Yeah. So, <laughs> there it yeah. goes. Yeah. So, imagine, if you will, if Homer talked about this insect, a scarab, firing fire out of its backside. And imagine that that insect had gone extinct between Herodotus uh, we, and Homer. We for sure and would now not believe we it. Would we would laugh and laugh and laugh and say, are you out of your minds? Like, really? Yeah. Like, what possible precedent is there for an insect that can launch fireballs? You silly fools. Right. And yet. It's real. So, we pretend it's somehow more sci-fi friendly. Yeah, we found it. Yeah, we found it. It yeah. burned our finger. <laughs> yeah, it, it launched a little fireball. So, the in those situations, like gorillas were cryptozoology for a long time until we found them. Uh, mm. Imagine the elephant. If the ancients talked about the elephant and we had no fossils and we'd never seen one, yeah, be like, no way, that's not real. Yeah, and so, so we, we're just we're really full of ourselves, and we accuse all ancient people of being liars, right? Uh, you know, just by default. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, you read Herodotus talk about you know, oh, we all knew there were swarms of flying snakes that came in and bit a bunch of people every year. Every year, we were, we were, we knew, in Egypt, that's what happens. It's not yep. like the Egyptians were making that up. Right. And they also, the ibis bird was sacred to them because it fought the flying vipers and would kill them off in the mountain passes. And Herodotus said every year the, the ibis would fly up in enormous armies up in the mountain passes to, to basically, to, eat. to battle <laughs> the vipers, which were, it's like in the, the migratory season of the flying vipers and they would go up in the mountain passes and meet them as they tried to enter into Egypt. Yeah. And they'd have these big, huge fights. And Herodotus said that he had personally walked up, having not believed the stories, walked up into those mountain passes and witnessed the remains. Like that he personally went and saw, and this is what happened. And then you have to say, what does he get out of telling a lie? Like, for him to lie about that, what does he gain? You know, he, he tells a story of arriving in a culture, not quite believing their story, checking it out, and being like, yep. It happened. Like, it happened. There was no Oprah's book club. There was, no, there was no anything else for him to try to get. He wasn't faking a memoir, you know, like many people have done before. He's either a psychopath or... Yeah. He's either a compulsive liar or he's telling and a the psycho truth. or he's telling the truth. And we moderns love to say, well, it has to be false. And then you look in the Old Testament and you're like, oh, there's serpents that, you know, launch out of these holes and bite the Israelites. And there's a bronze serpent that they have to put up. And, you know, it's one of those things like, did they, were these like vipers that could really just jump far? <laughs> are these like, yeah, are they the, what's the, the flying snakes now that we have observed spread their rib cages? Yeah. It's not hard to imagine. There are snakes. I mean, that they can, can go a football field, I think. More. More. Yeah. Multiple. Yeah. Didn't you guys film some of these guys? Yeah. I've, I have witnessed and filmed flying snakes. Herodotus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, if Herodotus had actually told us, there are these snakes that flatten themselves out into a half cylinder 
uh, you know, they sort of like they they flay they splay out their rib cages mm. and suck in their bellies so that they can slither across the air. And they can do this for hundreds of yards. Yeah. And if they were extinct, we would say, <laughs> what malarkey is this? They probably blew fireballs out their backsides too. You know, it's like, we're just totally cynical. And we really believe that we are so, well, totally credulous when it comes to somebody in a white lab coat yep. and totally cynical when it comes to anyone from a prior civilization ever. Right. So. Yeah. Um, man. Other, and so if we read scripture yeah. and you read scripture with the truth in there. You will, you will have conversations with your kids about, are unicorns real? And you will say, yeah, obviously. Of course they are. What does it mean? It means a one-horned beast. What do we know about it? It means it's really difficult to tame. You know, it's very hard to domesticate. We know you can't really plow your fields with it. <laughs> That's what we know. So whatever our understanding of that passage is. One-horned. It's got to be that. It's got to be something that's really hard to tame and plow with. So probably a rhino, probably a one-horned rhino, which existed. We know this. So it's like, okay, sure. Uh, satyrs, are they real? Yep. Like, yeah, they are. Are they biological or are they supernatural? Probably supernatural. I don't think there was a race of, you know. Goatmen. Goatmen. I think it's actually demonic. I think it's probably the physical manifestation of a particular type of demon, which also shows up in a ton of cultures and stories. Yeah. So anyway, it's that kind of thing. So when I write fantasy, I'm writing fantasy because I live in a fantasy world. Yeah. Like I live in one and I live, you know, in the, in a long history of fantastical things that have happened. Sci-fi is one, like one recent phase of development in this fantasy world where instead trying to communicate with demons and gain power that way. We're trying to unlock all the cheat codes of reality that God built in and manipulate them to our own control and power. So think about splitting the atom and look at whatever room you're in, listener, dear listener, look around and try to do just a rough calculation of how many atoms are around you right now. And then think about how much power is in every one of them. If you split any of those, if any of those broke in half, what happens? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, that's, it's significant. <laughs> and there's a lot of those. There's a lot of them. There's so much power baked into this reality. And so sci-fi is, is focuses on stories of unlocking that. And it is, you know, I think it's, they can be great. They can be really helpful because God made the world this way. And there is tech we can unlock and there are secrets we can find. And we can make artificial memory out of sand and lightning. We can make chips and using copper and, you know, yeah, it's, it's amazing. We can write very, very small messages to ourselves and, and retrieve them later with controlled lightning. That's awesome. And that's both sci-fi and fantasy. So my, uh, my iPhone, as I'm fond of telling school kids, has a crystal eye. You know, it's, a, it's an artificial brain made out of sand and lightning. It has a crystal. That's a fantasy word. That's, you know, that's, that's a nice fantasy word. And that, that crystal eye captures light bouncing off of people's faces. And then that little artificial brain writes instructions for another artificial brain to imitate what that crystal saw. Throw th throws those instructions off of a satellite, bounces them around the world. Somebody else 
opens their little artificial brain, receives the instructions, and that artificial brain reconstructs an image based on what my crystal saw and my artificial brain translated into our made-up language. I mean, like, we're in a fantasy world. Absolutely. And uh, we just are numb to it. And yeah. so sci-fi is absolutely a subset of fantasy with different props and inciting incidents and is, I think, far more prophetic and cautionary and is great. But it does, it does have um, a bunch of devotees who follow it because it gives them the wish fulfillment of it really happening. This could happen. This could happen in my lifetime, if not in my lifetime, you know, in my kids' lifetimes. This could happen in a parallel universe right now. It could be happening right now. You know, that kind of wish fulfillment, I think, is a big factor in sci-fi's success. Okay. I like so it. So feel free to write it, those of you who like to write. But be aware of the of the general, you know, genre and the yeah. proclivities, both good and bad, of that genre. Did we cover it enough? We should probably we'll probably have to follow up with specific questions. If anybody has real specific questions about sci-fi, we can yeah. try to hit those in a future episode. Yeah, let's do it. I think that's it. And okay. uh, inoculate yourself with some Herodotus. Yeah. Some some Isaiah. Read read older translations of the Bible that are not embarrassed. They're, they're not yeah. embarrassed by the modern world. And then you don't be embarrassed. Yeah. Practice, not practice. Being embarrassed. It's harder yes. than you think. It's harder yes. than you think. Moses was a wizard. What else would you call him? Right. There we go. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> the end. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories or Soul Food podcast. Before we go, I wanted to make sure you knew about Tim Chester's Dragons and Dragon Slayers. This imaginatively illustrated book includes eight dragon myths from China, Greece, Japan, England, Iceland, and even America, and explains why we are telling these kinds of stories all the time. Who doesn't love a good dragon book? Buy it today at canonpress.com. Canon Press.